What a way to begin Season 7 of Lush Life by attempting to tackle the category that is Asian rice wine and spirits. We would be truly destined to fail if we didn't have such a spectacular leader to guide us through. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. How can I describe Marie Chiang Tong? She is not only one of eight spirit committee members of the IWSC, but also chairman of the British Sake Association, a council member of the Association of Wine Educators, a member of both the Circle of Wine Writers and the Guild of Food Writers, educator on Asian rice, wine, and spirits at the Wine and Education Trust, and so much more, including my friend and our guest today. I cannot think of anyone better to be our leader as we head into this massive category. Think of this episode as Asian Drinks 101 at a glance. But before all that, if you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us? Just go to patreon.com slash lushlife. And you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. You could get Lush Life merchandise, personalized bar suggestions, exclusive content, and so much more. Go check it out at patreon.com slash lushlife. Thank you. Now let's dive in. I am so thrilled to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be talking Asian rice wines and spirits today. We're going to do a quick whistle-stop tour through all of them, and then maybe later on in the year, we can do a more advanced one. It's great to have you on the show, Marie. Thank you, Susan. Pleasure and very honored that you have chosen me for your next <laughs> podcast on a very interesting area, sort of the Asian style drinks, as I would call it. And yeah, a, a bit about my background. I'm a botanist. My life before drinks and food was botany. I did my first degree at Imperial College in botany and I basically found that getting a job was damn impossible. With that, I went on to do a master's in marketing, spent the first six years of my life in the IT world, a communications marketing and gave it all up because I thought it was boring and I couldn't see myself working in that field uh, longer than I had. With that, gave it all up, went into the Cordon Bleu, did my diploma very, very quickly, and also my WSET, and ended up with my Wine and Spirit diploma, and then got married, went off to Boston, and that was the end of my career. After... <laughs> Two years in Boston, uh, came back with a baby in tow and never worked again, as in truly worked again. When my son was seven and went to boarding school, I had a second child. And therefore, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and uh, because of that, again, no work, but um, she went off to boarding school at seven. And that's where my real career started. I was picked up by a PR agency, did some work on wine. During an event, a master of wine came up to me and sort of just suddenly, suddenly said, Marie, how come I haven't seen you on the judging circuit? And I'm going, judging? What judging? And that was the start of my wine judging. He, I'll say he, I won't tell you who it is, 
got me into the wine judging circuit and I've been judging wines for the last oh nearly 20 years and then spirits came in sake came in and today I'm basically a freelance judge communicator writer presenter in sort of wines spirits uh food and basically just anthropology of what we've been eating all these years and drinking all these years Susan so that's the story of my life in, you know, a nutshell. Oh my gosh. You know what? I'm going to have to have you on the show just to discuss all of that. <laughs> but I've promised, number one, not to interrupt so much this time because we have so much to get through. And um, gosh, I want to ask you so many questions. It's going to be so hard for me. So um, why don't we start, number one, maybe where uh, just a teeny intro of where your love of Asian rice wine and spirits came and then just go crazy. I know we're going to talk about sake and excuse my pronunciation, shochu and soju and baiju today. So go crazy. Okay. My love for all things to drink and eat has always been there. As a Chinese, that's what I am. I, or I originated from Malaysia from a little island called Penang where food culture was a big thing. All we talked about was about food and drink and that was it. So it's been in my blood, it's there and always has been there. The usual sort of been there, done that, uh, tick the box. So that's <laughs> where it all started. Anyway, we can talk about that some other time, but let's, let's head on to this. Today, we're going to look at all things Asian. So we're going to look at wines, spirits and weird drinks okay so um let's look at wine back thousands and thousands and millions of years ago alcohol where did that come from i mean there are two strains you've got the asian and you've got our sort of western culture western culture shows in archaeological digs that cavemen were drinking some or eating some form of alcoholic drink there were there, there are bowls with sort of uh, munched up cereal showing that even in the caveman days, people were probably soaking cereals that they picked or nuts and whatever, left them in bowls and uh, maybe chewed them a bit to get uh, a solution going. We'll talk about that in a bit later. And then created a beer or some sort of fermented drink with bubbles in it. That's the Western world. The Chinese world, same thing, millions and millions of years ago in China, not Japan. We start off in China. They found that, that bits of wine had already been made. They found urns with grape seed residue way, 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 way back. So grape wine did exist, okay? And also, not everywhere could you grow fruit and grapes to create wines. So cereal, the Chinese found very early on that you can't turn a cereal starch into anything drinkable without doing something to it. So amylase in our mouths, you literally, you know, whatever cereals, acorns, whatever they found, they chewed, they spat it in a bowl, right? Left it out in the open, allowed ambient yeast and probably bacteria that kept the solution nice and clean and ferment 10 days, 12 days, 20 days later, bubbly porridge would appear. And by eating that porridge, they realized that they could get very happy. So that was the start of making some form of alcohol in China. Now, China then went on, they progressed, they, they made things like, you know, rice wines and uh, cereal wines. Let's just look at that very quickly before mm -hmm. I go on to sake. So rice wine, 
there are different types of rice. You have got normal table rice and you have got glutinous rice. As we know, glutinous rice has a lot more sugar in it. So the Chinese, being smart as they were, realized using glutinous rice created alcohol more quickly because it's already got the sugar in it. So they created a rice wine that's still available everywhere in China and it's moved down Southeast Asia and it's basically steamed. Now we use steamed, okay? So what they do is you steam the rice. Glutinous rice is gloopy. You add your yeast and bacteria culture in it and this is found as a yeast ball which uh, is called chu, Q-U. And chu has in it bacteria, yeast, all sorts of fungus. Now, they, these fungi, uh, namely Aspergillus, Rhizopus, and uh, a few other fungus, actually grow in steamed rice. What happens is mycelium, the, the little mycelium sticks into a rice. Enzymes, amylase, protease, breaks down the starch and proteins and absorbs minerals, whatever, to allow them to grow. And in doing so, create a sugary solution. Once this sugary solution is formed, yeast, ambient yeast from around wherever goes into it. You've also got bacteria, things like lactic acid bacteria. You've got acetobacteria. Why acetobacteria? Why lactic acid bacteria? Acids. Acids kill harmful bugs. So this is all natural, the way of life, our universe. That's how we are still here today. So with all that in there, you get a cleanish pot of alcohol and alcohol itself is anyway very antiseptic. That is the start of your glutinous rice wine. Glutinous rice wine in China, as we know it today, is called mi chu. Mi meaning rice, chu as in wine. Besides that, you have got what they call huangju. Huangju is the newest thing. It's going to be the biggest thing, Susan. That is the next big bang, okay? You heard and it now. You've heard it now, everybody. Uh, watch this space. <laughs> watch Susan, because we're going to be in there. And it's um, delicious. It's almost like a sherry, but sweet. And they can Ooh. be aged. Like normal grape wine, you can age them, and they are ridiculously expensive. Uh, they're slowly coming into the UK. I can't give you any more details other than we will be having it in the UK. It's going to be the big bang. So um, uh, Huangju is it's like a sherry, sweet, delicious, very, very complex. Aromatics, crazy, crazy, amazing. All right. Now, that is your Huangju and your Miju. You come down Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Laos, and Indonesia, and all the way to Philippines. They all make some sort of rice wine. All right. Now, whether they use glutinous rice or just normal rice, it is made. Loads and loads of different names for it. We, we won't go through that now. We'll do a 102 rice wine later on in the year, just to let you know. So that is rice wine. So the Chinese okay. started it. We had that. Now, China and Japan had a lot of trade long before Japan closed its doors. So emissaries from China brought over their Michu rice wine and possibly their Huangju across to Japan to trade. The Japanese very fast, learn how to make a rice wine. Like the Chinese, they use the same chu, the, the starter, and original Japanese rice wine was very much like the Chinese. Terribly crude, very oxidized, and probably only drunk by the peasants. 
Wind the clock further, around 5th century BC, there are remains to show that a more sophisticated style of sake, which basically means alcohol. The word sake is the same word as chiu, just pronounced differently, but it's the same Chinese character. Chiu, dao, sake, oh, okay. okay, is the same. Okay, and, and, and actually chiu, as in seishu, is actually the same shu as chu, as in Cantonese jiao, and uh, in uh, Hokkien jiu. So we're, okay. we're crazy people, Susan. We, I mean, it's the same, <laughs> same character, same way of writing, but pronounced differently because we're all different nations. Okay, so 5th century BC, they found that in Japan, people were growing rice, actually for eating. People lived in huts. And huts were made of clay, whatever, but the roofs were made of straw from the rice. So every day, farmers would go out, do their farming, come home, boil rice to eat, steam rice to eat. When there was leftover rice, it was probably left on the kitchen table. They'd go to sleep, they get up the next morning, and they go to work and do their own things. Then somewhere along the line, someone found, ooh, one day... This rice is lovely. It tastes sweet. Okay. And from there, they realized that rice itself had fungus growing on it, fungi. And the, the fungi growing on rice sort of naturally is something called Aspergillus orizae. Aspergillus orizae, like all this, uh, what I've been talking about, koji, uh, chew, uh, basically grows on rice and it turns the starch in the rice grain into Sugar, glucose, fructose. Oh, so okay. you've got straw grow a uh, straw straw roots, yeah. spores from the aspergillus falling onto nice warm cooked rice, growing happily, turns it into a lovely sugary solution, and uh, amazake was formed. Amazake is just basically a porridge or a drink. I mean, today it's a drink because you, you press it, but in those days it's probably a porridge. It was very tasty, great for breakfast. And what they found was leave it a bit probably ambient yeast, a bit of lactic acid bacteria, and boy, oh boy, oh boy, sake was created. So roll on forward, ninth century, temples, shrines started producing sake. Now, as we all know, alcohol's not great. It makes you go crazy. It makes you very happy. So sake in Japan was purely used as a religious celebratory drink. So only temples right. and shrines were allowed to make sake. Made in the same way, Rice was sort of steamed, and then some of it was inoculated with koji. The rest was used for the main fermentation, and sake was born. Ninth century, mm-hmm. roughly ninth century AD, when we've moved on to AD now, was when they started realizing that actually we don't have to eat sake as a porridge. We can actually drink it. So they learned to basically filter the sake very, very coarsely using muslin, using cloths, whatever. So that was the start of actual drinking sake. And that's when what I call true sake began. True sake as we drink sake. So that's how sake was made. Roll forward, better quality, better sake. I'm not going to move any more into that. The procedures, the production got a lot, lot better. And today... There are about 1,200 sake breweries in Japan, and it started growing again. So sake is becoming more popular. As we can see in the UK, we can buy a lot of sakes. 
There are about 12 different distributors of sakes, shops, uh, supermarkets. So there you are. That's sake, how it's made. Now, sake is very complicated. As all Japanese things, everything is very, very, very um, specific. Everything is done very, very cleanly, perfectly. There's notes in every single procedure, whatever. So in sake, there are eight categories, namely futsushu, which is your non-premium sake. And then within the premium sake range, there is honjozo and jumai. And then in the next level up, you have got your jumai ginjo and your ginjo. And then you have got your top end, dai ginjo and jumai dai ginjo. And there's a special category called tokobetsu. And tokobetsu actually means special. And special meaning that the sake made had an extra special step put into it. Whether it's something like, okay, you have got a jumai ginjo, which is our middling range of premium sake. If you see tokobetsu jumai ginjo, it just means that, okay, we've done something extra to this sake. And it could be something like polishing it to a higher degree. So technically it's a higher type of sake, but they've dropped it down one level and call it special. It's like wine, you know, you, you have your appellations, you have your, your van der Taub, VDQS and things like that. And sometimes, you know, you can bend the rules a little bit. So that's your eight categories. Oh, I have a question. Yes. Just one question. That's special. Mm-hmm. Is it regulated or can anyone throw anything and call it a special? Oh, no, no. It's totally regulated. Hey, we're talking Japanese here. I knew you were <laughs> okay. going to say that. We're talking Japanese. <laughs> there, are Japan. only, there are only several methods of making something special. Either the polish rate is lower, a special rice was yeah. used, right. or, you know, it's special. Okay. Now, not okay. putting more sugar in it doesn't make it special. Yeah, we got it. All right. Very quickly, ingredients in sake. There are only four ingredients in making sake today. Very, very regulated and you cannot divert from this. Proper sake is made with rice, clean water, koji, which is your starter pack, and yeast. Only four things. Nothing is added into it other than possibly lactic acid. And lactic acid is added purely just to keep this, uh, the whole pot nice and clean and bug-free. Okay, so that is sake. Okay. Right, we have talked about eight categories of sake. We now talk about style for sake. I am sure everybody's heard of sparkling sake. Uh, you have heard of a cloudy sake. You, we can have unpasteurized sake. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are different styles. We can have old sake, koshu. And when we talk about old sake, we're not talking about buying your most expensive bottle of Jumai Daiginjo at, I don't know, two or three hundred pounds, putting it under your bed and in 10 years time think, oh, I've got a koshu that could be worth um, 20,000 pounds because you'll wake up with a big shock. You'll probably have a bottle of oxidized vinegar with lots of cloudy <laughs> clumps in it. So koshu is aged sake. It's made very specially. And it, it, it's been made from the start to become an old age sake. Okay. okay. So there you go. Styles. I've very quickly covered cat, uh, categories, styles, how it's made. And sake is delicious. Go find some and drink it. You can get some very decent price 
sakes these days in London. And if you join my British Sake Association, where I am the chairman, we actually have our own sort of selected sakes. And I think we're, we, we're going to be selling it, our own sort of British Sake Association recommended sake for about £12 a bottle. Well, I'll have information about that too in the show notes. One thing, will you just tell us, other than in cocktails, which we'll get to later, how is it usually drunk? You know, is it ever on ice or is it always cold? Is it always hot? Give us the scoop. Okay, sake is very versatile, okay, because it's got very little acidity in it because lactic acid is what keeps everything clean. Uh, as opposed to wine and citric acid and tartaric acid, it's very easy drinking. All right. So no, we never have it in ice because you don't want to dilute the sake any more than it is. It's delicate enough. It's got amazing aromas and sweetness. We tend to drink it either cold, warm, or hot. Now, being Japanese, the Japanese have poems for everything. There is even a poem for the sake temperatures that you would drink it at. Okay, I can't remember all of them, but basically it starts with zero, zero degrees, which is, you know, drinking sake in the snow. Oh my God, I love it. All right, so it's at zero degrees. And then you, it goes up to like, you know, 14, 15 degrees, uh, drinking sake, looking at the cherry blossoms. Oh, how romantic. Okay, so that's that. And then drinking sake at uh, body temperature. And then you have drinking sake in an onsen bath. So it is, it's, it's beautifully written. I do have the, uh, the little um, diagram, but again, I think it's on my website, but you can look at it. It's beautiful. It's just sort of, you know, the different, okay. there's, a, there's a special sort of um, little phrase for the temperatures rather than, you know, five degree, 10 degree, da, 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 35. So it's beautiful. So that's drinking sake. Rule of thumb, the better the sake, cooler you drink it okay all right not ice cold but uh, i mean a really top quality junmai daiginjo with a polish rate of you know i don't know 35 um the competition style sakes which is using yamada nishiki um uh, 35 percent polish and using yeast number nine is your typical um competition sake formula if you're going to be drinking something like that probably at about five to eight degrees Drinking warm sake, you tend to have the more savory style, what I call the uh, lower polished rice, your sort of non-premium sake up to your sort of junmais, which are a lot more savory. They're not as sweet. The rice hasn't polished as much. So basically a lot more proteins in it, a lot more minerals. And uh, as we talked about protease and amylase, you know, whether you use mm-hmm. uh, the sugar digestion or the protein digestion, so protease turns proteins into amino acids. Amino acids gives you umami, a, a word All that right. I think a lot of people have been playing around with. So uh, junmai sakes are a lot more umami, savory, the big, 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 big in your mouth. You can warm that up to drink. Okay, so uh, drinking warm sake is for sort of... I don't. I'm not going to say lower end because it's not lower end. They're all delicious they all all sakes have their own deliciousness so okay. the umami higher umami mushroom earthier style sakes you tend to drink warm and not hot okay. not boiling warm 50 degrees centigrade at maximum is that enough for sake in a nutshell here 
no, just one more thing before we go on is that because you brought it up about polished. So I'm assuming that the premium, more premium is the more polished. Okay. Very quickly, Susan. Sake is made. And then I promise that's the last question (laughs) for me. Sake is made, as I said, four ingredients, rice, koji, yeast, and water. Rice. The rice is the most important part, okay? Now, unlike beers where you just go get your wheat, you just go get your barley, throw it in a pot, okay? Um, no, you don't. You literally sprout it, okay? Once you sprout it, the little sprout comes out. That little sprout has a lot of uh, amylase, and that is what happens. That amylase will stick itself into your little barley, Pick out all the starch, turn it into sugar, and then what you do is you roast it or you literally just heat it through, kill the shoot, and then that's how you make your beer. Now, with sake, we cannot, cannot sprout the rice. If you sprout the rice, you leave the rice grain whole. The rice grain whole means there's far too much proteins and minerals to create a delicate sake. What sake tries to do is uh, to grind down mill down a rice granule to almost where the starch is. So if you buy a bottle of 20% polished rice, in other words, that grain of rice from that goes down to 20%, you're getting only the starch. And if you're only using that starch to ferment, you're going to get a very clean, clear um, sake with very little umami. So the polish rate is important. And then we talk about this whole koji and aspergillus because Something's got to turn that little bit of starch into sugar. And uh, so that's where we go. So, okay. The way polishing okay. rate goes is uh, from 0 to 70% left of a rice grain gives you only a normal non-premium sake. After that, everything is premium. Okay. So if you polish that rice grain from 69 to 60, it becomes a hongjozo or a junmai. And then from fifteen, okay. uh, from uh, fifty nine to fifty, it becomes a ginjo or a junmai ginjo. And anything under fifty becomes a jun junmai dai ginjo or a dai ginjo. Dai meaning big, the big ginjo. Ginjo meaning the aromatics of a sake. And today, okay. you can get sakes that are a hundred percent, which is just a normal sake, right down to. Zero percent. Now you're going to say to me, zero percent, there's no rice in it. Wrong. The, the way the Japanese work is, you know, you're going to round up. So if you ever find a sake and they do exist, I tasted one in Madrid just uh, two months ago in a competition, uh, though I didn't judge in it. Basically, they had a zero percent polished sake. That means that average, it was zero. The rice grains were okay. polished for anything from 0.5 down to 0.1%. So it is classified <laughs> as zero. And lastly, one last thing before we move on. When do you buy a cheap sake? And I'm cheap meaning, you know, in Japan, you can pick up a bottle of sake for about a pound. So that to me is cheap sake. It doesn't oh, mean boy, that really? it's bad, but non-premium sakes, you can add stuff into it. Remember I said Good sake is only made from four ingredients. With non-premium sake, obviously, they're going to make a lot of sake. So they can use the rice powder from the polished rice. Nothing is wasted. Environmentally friendly. Okay. okay. Sometimes people do use the rice powder to make cheaper sake. 
all right? And they can add all sorts of stuff into it, like extra sugar, extra amino acids, fructose, everything to make that cheaper sake tasty. But it cannot be classified as a premium sake. And one more thing, one more thing. Rice. There is sake (laughs) rice, especially grown rice for sake. Sake can be made with table rice, i.e. the rice that you and I eat. But uh, there are 120 sake rice varieties already specifically grown for sake. Okay. Okay. On that, I think we better move on. Otherwise, I'll just talk nonstop. We've done sake. sake. So we've done sake. We've done rice wines. We've done fermented fermented, uh, wines. Now, lastly, sake is not a spirit. Please, please, please. Anybody who says sake is a spirit, call me. Come and speak to me because I will go mental. (laughs) Sake is a wine. Alcohol content, anything from about 8% sparkling sake up to a maximum of 22% alcohol of a non-diluted Genshu, Genshu meaning totally non-diluted, it is as is. You can go up to 22%. After that, the yeast will die anyway. The koji will die, so fermentation just cannot get on any further. Okay, so there we go. Sake done in a nutshell. Let's go on to spirits. Okay, Asian spirits versus uh, sort of Western spirits. Again, the difference between Asian spirits and uh, Western spirits is the wonderful koji, this fungus that's used. Don't get me wrong, Japan does make whiskies. It makes whiskies using the normal Western way. Okay, we're not going to go into whiskies today, but there are rums and gins and, you know, vodkas that are made in Asian countries, made the of course. normal way, maybe using different cereals and, you know, potatoes or sweet potatoes or whatever. But we're going to talk about Asian spirits. So the one main thing in Asian spirits is that it has to have koji. So I'm going to start with a Japanese okay. spirit, a very old style Japanese spirit, and it's called shochu. Shochu originated from Japan and it's basically, it started off with sake. You've got lots of sake. If you don't drink up this cheaper sake that you've made or it's not good enough to be drunk, what do you do with it? You turn it into a spirit like the rest of the world. Yeah, if it's, uh, you know, you're making whiskey, it's not good enough, it ends up becoming a gin or a vodka. So same thing, shochu is made from sake that has been distilled. That was the original Shochu, okay? So that is one thing. Now let's look at Japan. Japan is a very long island with uh, very different climatic changes from Hokkaido, where you've got snow seven, eight months of the year, down to Kyushu, which has almost a tropical climate. Okinawa, it's tropical, okay? So yes, you can grow rice and everything through Japan. But then when you come down to Kyushu and Okinawa, rice is okay, but it's got volcanic soil. These two islands have got a lot of volcanic soil, doesn't grow rice very well. So all the rice that is grown in the south is for eating. All right. Japan has a huge population. It needs rice to eat. So what they found was that, oh, we got to find something else to make alcohol that we like. And so sweet potatoes comes into play. You think sweet potatoes. Now, how did sweet potatoes get into Japan to be turned into an alcohol? We wind back again, all right, back to the 10th, 11th century. And we said that China and Japan had a lot of trade going on. And Okinawa 
and Kyushu are closest to mainland China. So the sweet potato, which originated all the way from South America, yeah, <laughs> that we're looking now、right. from South America,、yeah. Vasco da Gama. We're talking of the Spanish and Portuguese big sail sailor men that sailed across to the Far East. Yeah. So they brought all their—I don't know what—across to the Far East, and of course they were bringing back spices and whatever. And along the way, they were trading. So they hop into—we think it's probably Philippines, all right. So South America, all the way to Philippines, dropped off sweet potatoes there. The Philippines started growing sweet potatoes, and then from there, sweet potatoes slowly moved up into China, and then from China, China introduced sweet potatoes to. Okinawa and, Shut,、uh, and Kyushu. It was a Japanese emissary that brought the sweet potatoes from China, Kyushu. So Kyushu started growing lots of sweet potatoes. And how much sweet potatoes can you eat? Not a lot. So they learned <laughs> to turn the sweet potatoes into shochu. All right. And you're going to ask me next question: How、okay. did distillation get into Japan? Distillation. Let's roll all the way back, okay? Centuries and centuries ago, started in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia yeah, what today、uh, is Iraq. We know that the first still alambic alambic comes from the Arab lands in Mesopotamia. All right, there, Middle East, they didn't drink alcohol, not that we know of. So. All the distilling was about perfumes and、oh, medicines and、yeah. things like that. Okay, now the still that was originated from there moved two ways: one way down into Europe, and that's how we started making our vodkas and that kind of stuff. The other way, it moves through India and then India up into China, and we think it probably got into Japan through the trade and by ship into Kyushu from China, the, sh the shortest distance. So Japan only started distilling much, much later on. It was the 15th century. They figured it out,、okay. and they were making this sweet potato fermented stuff that probably tasted disgusting. They learned to turn sweet potato, distill the stuff, and it became shochu. All right, so that's the origins of shochu. That's history,、okay. right? Production of shochu again, being Japanese, very, very, very strict production. Shochu can only be made. From fifty-five agricultural ingredients, it has to be agricultural. So,、okay. sweet potato is one of them. Then you have got rice. Then you have got barley. Then you have got soba. Soba is buckwheat, and the last is sugar, brown sugar. All right. So, sweet potato. We've touched on it. It is the most popular shochu. It's、uh, right. basically made from sweet potato and the koji, the magic that turns the starch in the sweet potato into a sugary solution,、right. tends to be grown on rice. So the substrate is rice. So a lot of the sweet potato koji uses rice koji to make into shochu.、Okay. Alrighty, now you want to get more complicated. Koji. There are three types of koji. Of course, okay, three types of aspergillus, <laughs> and that is the rice growing aspergillus. You have got yellow, white, and black. For making sake, it tends to be yellow,、okay. and yellow koji you have to add lactic acid into it to create a, a stable, bacteria-free、um, solution. But for making shochu, we we tend to use black or white koji. Black and white koji are the same. 
Okay. The white koji basically is the uh, a mutation of the black koji. It doesn't have the melanin that makes it black. Okay, and it was preferred because in a lab or in a brewery, if you're using black koji, you come out black. The, you know, there's black spores everywhere. Everything looks disgusting. Okay. So this professor managed to isolate the white spores of the original black and white koji and create this new white koji, which is exactly the same as the black, but just color. And so white koji is used today. Black and white koji doesn't work with lactic acid. Black and white koji actually produces citric acid as it's fermenting. So citric acid that it produces is what keeps your nice, clean environment in your big tank. Okay, so, okay, I'm stopping that. Yes, that, that's, we are past 101. <laughs> Women have generally preferred drinking sweet potato shochu. And uh, you want to talk cocktails? Basically, shochu drunk by women is sort of turning to a very simple spritz using a fruit juice. And my favorite is using freshly squeezed grapefruit juice and a bit of soda water. So you drink your sweet potato shochu, squeeze off grapefruit and some soda water. It's delicious. And it's called a chuhai, shochu highball. Okay, one question. Why do you think that women liked it more than the sake? Sake was seen as a peasant drink for a long, long time in Japan. I remember the very first time oh, I went okay, to Japan. So it's social. It's social. Sake was, yeah. uh, you know, it was brewed and it wasn't very tasty. If you go back to sort of the sort of, I reckon, 1920s to 1950s, sake was made, it was just stored in terracotta pots. You would just bring your terracotta pot in, fill it up with sake, you go home. So it's very oxidized. It's probably like drinking sherry. Women, you know, it's not seen as a drink for women, not sort of clean enough as it were. Shochu, on the other hand, stores well. You can get it anywhere. A bottle of shochu will keep, there is no expiry date. Oh, forgot to mention, sake expiry date. The rule of thumb is that a bottle of sake should not be kept more than two years. After that, it will start deteriorating, okay? Okay. Sake should be kept stored cold. So if you've got good sake, shove it in your refrigerator. It will keep for two years. But today, things are changing and um, sake brewers are playing with sort of aging and leaving your bottle of sake under, um, under your table or under your bed, but it's made differently. So I, I don't want to talk about okay. that now, but um, rule of no. thumb, sake, if you've got a bottle, drink it within two years. Shochu, on the other hand, ABV, anything from 25 to below 45 can be kept like a bottle of spirit on your shelf. It doesn't deteriorate. Of course, don't put it under the sunlight for long, long periods of time or, you know, in high temperatures. So shochu, in a nutshell, 55 different ingredients can be used. So the five that I talked about, rice, sweet potato, barley, buckwheat, and raw sugar are the main ones. But you can get, I had a a green tea shochu recently, and that was delicious. And so there are different ones you can get, but the main ones are just the five. Um, what else can I say about it? How how do they add the secondary ingredient, the 50, 55 ingredients to the base? These are the, the five big ones are the base ingredients. They come out water white and they taste uh -huh. and smell of the ingredient, the primary ingredient that's gone in. Um, with secondary ingredients, okay. it's put in later, okay, it's steeped into the ferment, 
and then everything is then distilled. Okay. So the, the, the product still comes out white, but you get the lovely aroma of the secondary substrate that was put in it. I believe there is a company that's even making milk shochu. I haven't tried it, but I heard there is a milk shochu because milk is still an agricultural ingredient. What else about shochu? I know. I can't wait to try it. Oh, let's do it. Or come and do my class. I do teach a class on shochu for the um, Sake School of America. Uh, I'm the only educator in the whole wide world outside of America that can teach the course. So we'll run a course. Uh, what else can I say about shochu? It is, it, it is great. It is used a lot in cocktails. It is now becoming very, very popular in the UK. You will get shochu cocktails, um, as I said, like a chuhai, shochu highball. Or I tasted one the other day, which was actually very delicious. It had sake in it, had shochu in it, had cherry, salted cherry blossoms and delicious. And another one was using yuzu. Yuzu is a oh, citrus fruit. Japanese yeah. based and it's used in a lot of alcohols. Actually, sake, you can now get yuzu sake, which is delicious. And of course, plum sake. Uh, I didn't talk about that because technically as a true sake drinker, yuzu sake and uh, yuzu shu, they call it, and umeshu is not true sake, but you can make umeshu and yuzu shu using shochu. Yeah. Okay. What else can I tell you about shochu? That's just so much. I, you know, it's impossible going through it today. No, that's good. But um, I don't know if this is where you're going next and you can tell me not. But of course, when I was talking to you before, I said, oh, we'll have to talk about soju. And you're like, no, 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 <laughs> soju. It's something completely different. Let's do soju. Oh, great, great. Wow. This is getting very, very, very interesting, Susan. Okay. Shochu, Japanese. <gasps> S-H-O-C-H-U. And the O on both have got the long line, which means it's a O. It's a O. Shochu. Okay. Shochu. Anyway, that's Japanese. We know Korea is Japan's neighbor. They work together a lot. The Koreans and the Japanese, they've lived together. They have traded together. And so Shochu somehow got into Korea. And Korea is known as Soju. S-O-J-U. So if you go to a nation supermarket and you say, I want to buy some shochu, look carefully. Shochu, S-H-O-C-H-U, is Japanese a distilled drink. Soju, S-O-J-U, is the Korean equivalent. And I'm going to say equivalent with a... Because soju <laughs> is made more from grain. Yeah, it's more like okay. the baiju. So actually, we're, we're, we're leading nicely into all the other spirits. Soju, soju is normally made from millet, rice, and other sort of cereals. Same thing, it uses a koji, okay? And it's more the rhizopus type of koji, the Chinese-style koji, and fermented and distilled a similar way. But because it's less filtered, less refined type of spirit, and uh, its popularity dropped. But recently, Koreans being amazing and know all about marketing, as we all know, decided to change its image. And they've started making soju and that's been infused with fruit juice. So it's like a little alcopop. All right. Oh. So extra sugar is added into it. And you can buy soju drinks happily in Korea very cheaply. And it could be like, I don't know, apple, peach, uh, shiso. Shiso is uh, perilla and the Koreans love this perilla. 
And uh, you just buy them in Alcopop type thing. You can buy it in this country. If you go to a Korean restaurant, there's always two drinks you can have that's Korean. Oh, three drinks. You've got beer. You've got soju. And the third one you can buy is makleoli. Mm -hmm. Makleoli is a Korean version of sake. It is made with rice. It's fermented, only fermented, and it's unfiltered. And you, you buy them in glasses or in little tokuri, little flasks. And it's like pure white. It looks like milk, but it's got texture because it's still got rice grains in it. Okay. And similar, very similar to um, nigori sake, which is sake that's been very coarsely filtered. So you get the texture of rice. It's quite nice. It's like drinking uh, sort of uh, uh, a smoothie of rice with a little bit of alcohol. So that is Korea for you. Soju, yes, it's, it's distilled. It's now more popular. You can. Find it with fruit juice, so definitely go try it. It's it, it's quite mm-hmm. delicious, very refreshing. Okay, so from soju now, and by the way, Korea has its, its own rice yes. wines, as we said as well, which we're not going to look into it today. Uh, so from we've now looked at uh, Chinese rice wine, we have gone on to sake, we've looked at shochu, we're now soju. Let's go on to the big, big, big topic: baiju, China. Yes, we're stopping there. And next week, you'll hear part two as we head to China. But now, we have our cocktail of the week. Marie mentioned it as one of her favorites. So the grapefruit chuhai is our cocktail of the week. Add all of these ingredients to a glass filled with ice. One measure of your favorite shochu and the juice of half a grapefruit freshly squeezed. Then top with soda water and stir gently. Then garnish with a piece of grapefruit. You'll find this recipe, more highball recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find most of the ingredients in our shop. Just finished up London Cocktail Week, right after Venice Cocktail Week. Now it's time to calm down and write. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. We head to China next week when Marie is back for more. Until that time, bottoms up. Bottoms up.